Well, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you know that I plan out sermons a year in advance. I, I, I like to, to plan ahead. I like to know what I'm doing. Uh, but sometimes something happens and, and you have to go off script. You have to change what you planned. And today is such a day. Appreciate Tom and the class that, that he brought this morning. I, I appreciate one of our elders speaking into this issue and, and what he said is going to go right along with what I have to say. On Tuesday, I, I was at a conference in, in Austin as I was listening to, to speakers talk about the, the prophet Joel and the gospel of Mark and the book of Ephesians. I, I happened to glance down at my phone and there was an alert and it said that a teacher, a single teacher, had been shot in Uvalde, and my heart sank. You know, I, I immediately thought about my wife, who is a teacher. I thought about people in this church who are teachers and who work in our schools. I, I remember the, the many stories I, I've heard from, from these individuals and others about troubled kids in our school system. And I thought perhaps a, a teen like this may have taken a gun to school and, and did something awful to this teacher. And as I was trying to glean new lessons from Scripture, thoughts kept going through my mind, and it was hard to focus. I was distracted by this first piece of news coming out of Uvalde. But at the same time, if I am... Being honest, I also thought that one person dead, that's not going to make national news. A shooting in our country where only a person or two die, it doesn't get mentioned because we have become accustomed to this type of thing. It has to be something truly horrific for us to stop and pay attention. And just think about that for a moment. We have become numb to the violence around us. And we have accepted it as normal. A shooting at a school is now considered a common occurrence. How sad is this? Something is not right. Well, as the day went on, more news kept coming out of Uvalde and the, the death toll continued to rise, and there were conflicting reports about what was going on. And eventually we learned that 19 children and two teachers had been murdered. Nearly an entire fourth grade class had perished. And I kept thinking about this for days. In a small town, this is something that people notice because we talk about class sizes. And we keep up with how many are in a graduating class. And 19 gone will leave a mark on that community for years to come. And so what does a person say after a tragedy like this? Well, if you turn on the TV or log on to social media, you discover that there is a plethora of words, thoughts, and opinions and before the parents of those 19 children are able to lay their children to rest, 
America is rushing to have their political points heard. And winning an argument becomes more important than mourning or lament. And we have politicized everything in our country, including the deaths of innocent school children. And all sides are guilty. All sides have their memes and talking points and sound bites. And we rush to speak, even though Scripture tells us we should be slow to speak. We know what people say after tragedies like this. A more appropriate question to ask is, what should a person say after a tragedy like this? I remembered a book that David Bentley Hart wrote back in 2005. He wrote it after, you might remember, that many, many people were killed in a tsunami in Asia in December of 2004. And at the beginning of the book, he offers these words. He says, in the days immediately following, talking about this tsunami that that happened in Asia, a proper picture of the real dimensions of the disaster was strangely slow in reaching the world beyond. At first, those of us who lived far from the region heard that thousands had perished, which seemed tragic enough. Then in subsequent days, the number of the dead began to be reckoned in tens of thousands, and then finally in hundreds of thousands. And the true horror of what had occurred became, in some small measure, applicable for us. As I write, the most recent estimate is very near a quarter million. And when images of the aftermath began to appear, they seemed too dreadful to believe. Films of those caught amid the flood, clinging desperately to poles and railings and occasionally losing their grip to be torn away by the fierce rush of water. Satellite pictures showing where whole islands had been laid waste, villages swept away, the earth stripped of vegetation and photographs of long stretches of coastline strewn not only with wreckage, but with countless corpses, a great many the corpses of small children. Considering the scope of the catastrophe and of the agonies and sorrows it had visited on so many, we should probably have all remained silent for a while. The claim to discern some greater meaning, or for that matter, meaninglessness, behind the contingencies of history and nature is both cruel and presumptuous at such times. Pious platitudes and words of comfort seem not only futile, and banal, but almost blasphemous. Metaphysical disputes come perilously close to mocking the dead. There are moments, simply said, when we probably ought not to speak. When a tragedy strikes and we are not directly involved, we should probably pray Psalm 141 and verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We should remember the charge that the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans 12, 15. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. and We are to weep with those who weep. And so our first responsibility should be to lament and weep with those who are hurting. 
It should be to mourn that we live in a fallen world. In the midst of tragedy, people do not need to hear our thoughts on how to fix the problem. We should imitate those friends of Job who at least got one thing right. At the beginning, they sat with Job in silence. We also need to remember that even if something is true, it may not be helpful. And tragedies like this affect people in different ways. It's especially difficult on teachers and on students. And when something like this happens, it's just everywhere. It's all over the news. It's all over social media. You cannot escape it. We forget that teachers and students have to go right back into the classroom the very next day. And a teacher that is already feeling anxious and has no desire at all to carry a weapon does not want to hear the answer to this problem is arming teachers. It's just not helpful. And people like to share memes and we like to get our political jab in and If we find a saying we like and we believe that it's true, then we want to use it over and over again. And it's just part of human nature. However, in the midst of tragedy, we need to pause and consider how our words are going to sound to the people around us. We don't have to say anything. We can choose to be silent and listen to the people who have endured such a horrific tragedy. And when tragedy strikes, people often ask about God. Where was he? Why did he allow this to happen? Why didn't he stop this? And and it's natural to ask questions like this. The the Psalms, if you read them, they're, they're filled with questions and complaints that are similar to these questions that we hear during a moment like this. And in the midst of tragedy, it's not especially helpful to try to answer these questions. People are crying out and we need to listen. Well, without answering these questions, there are some helpful things that we can say. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 15, we hear the word of the Lord in the midst of tragedy. How does God feel when the lives of children are endangered? The text says, thus says the Lord. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel in this passage is viewed here as the matriarch of Israel. And she's weeping over those lost children that they experienced this loss in exile. And her pain here is so great that she cannot be comforted. And these very same words are found in the New Testament. They're found in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18 when Herod orders the murder of the innocents. And so this lament here is not specific, not not limited to a specific occasion. It's appropriate whenever children are lost, whenever children are endangered. Now Rachel is the one weeping in this lament, but it is God who speaks. 
In other places in Jeremiah, God himself weeps over his people. Just as we talked about this morning with Jesus weeping in multiple occasions. And so without getting into theology or complicated philosophical answers, we can say that God is saddened by tragedy. And especially tragedy involving innocent children. God cares. He, he grieves with those who grieves. He sees what is happening in our world. He hears our cries. And, and this is one of the reasons that God sent his son. God did not distance himself from our pain and suffering. What God does is he sees it and he enters into it. And he experienced this himself on the cross. And God is at work to undo all the wrongs in our world. And so God weeps over the events of this last week. And he's at work to redeem all things. But what about us? What should be our response to Uvalde? In Luke 13, 1 through 5, Jesus comments on two tragedies during his day. And this is what the text says. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is a a fascinating text. Jesus was first asked about this tragedy in which blame and judgment would have been easy. We know that Pilate was not a good person. We know that he did wrong. He was not a stand-up guy. And the people here asking this question were looking for Jesus to take sides. But Jesus refuses to play along. The second tragedy that he mentions seems random. Perhaps there was no one to blame. But Jesus gives the same response for both. Repent. When something like Uvalde happens... People spend days and weeks arguing back and forth and nothing ever changes. We blame one another and do nothing to address the problem. Jesus here recognizes that we live in a fallen world and what he does is he challenges everyone to change. Everyone to repent. When we consider... Uvalde, Buffalo, El Paso, Sutherland Springs, Santa Fe, Texas, Parkland, Florida, Las Vegas, and on and on and on and on across this country. The one thing that we can say is something is wrong. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. Who is responsible for this? It is us. It's not God. We have created 
the world that we live in. And if we want it to get better, then we all need to repent. We don't need to, to look to our neighbor and point our finger. We don't need to blame whichever group that we do not like. We need to look within and begin with ourselves. And we need to ask, how can I change? We need to ask, what can I do to make this world better? We need to ask, how can I be a light in the darkness? We live in a world full of hate. The shooting in Buffalo happened because an 18-year-old hated people because of the color of their skin. We live in a world that is growing less and less religious. And we cannot blame the world for this. It's Christians who are choosing to stay home. It's Christians who are choosing other things over worship. We live in a world that values the wrong things. Are we putting God above all else? Does our love for neighbor come before our wants and our desires? What are we willing to sacrifice? What comforts are we willing to give up so that God's will can be done here on earth? I guarantee you that, that God does not want what happened in Uvalde this last week. So what are we going to do? How are we going to change? In what ways will we become more like Jesus who brought peace and healing to this world? I was moved by many things this last week, and I was moved by, by these words from a, from a teacher. She writes, teachers, when you hear that one of your students has committed a heinous crime, are you ever surprised? Do you ever think, oh, I had no idea. I never would have expected that student to do that. Or are you more like me? Do you cry and say, we tried everything with that kid. We referred him to counseling. We tried to include him in groups. We tried to reach him. We knew something was off. But what do you do? We don't live in a pre-crime society here where people can be punished for things they haven't done. So often something happens and people say, there had to be red flags. Yes, there were. And people reported it. And we tried to do things about it. But what do you do? Would it surprise you to know that I'm generally a little afraid to go to work? Always. Not just today. I'm a little afraid of the kids in my hallways and what they may do to me when I confront them. I'm going. I'll continue to go. But what do we do about that? These words are not from a teacher in New York or California. They're from a teacher here in LaGrange, Texas. 
it's easy to get drug into a national debate about what's going on. But as we consider what we can do as Christians and as Americans, we should look past all that rhetoric in Washington. And we should focus our attention here on LaGrange. And Jesus says to us, living in LaGrange, Texas in 2022, the same thing that he said to those people in Luke 13, repent. And if we take these words seriously and want to change, we will do something here in our community to make things better. And we will support our teachers and we will invest in our children and we will mentor and befriend the troubled youth in our town. And we will pay attention to what is happening around us and we will not look away. We will seek to conform ourselves to the image of Christ and be peacemakers in our community. As we wrap up, I'd like to return again to the book, The Doors of the Sea by David Bentley Hart. At the conclusion, he offers these words concerning the problem of pain and suffering throughout history. He says, when, however, we learn in Christ the nature of our first estate and the divine destiny to which we are called, we begin to see more clearly the more we are able to look upon the world with the eye of charity, the eye of love, that there is in all the things of earth a hidden glory waiting to be revealed, more radiant than a million suns, more beautiful than the most generous imagination or most ardent desire can now conceive. Or rather, it is a glory not entirely hidden, veiled, rather, but shining in and through upon all things. The imperishable goodness of all being does in fact show itself in all that is. It shows itself in the vast waters of the Indian Ocean. And it's not hard to see when those waters are silver and azure under the midday sky, or gold and indigo in the light of the setting sun, or jet and pearl in the light of the moon. And when their smoothly surging tides break upon the shore, and harmlessly recede. But it's still there, even when the doors of the sea, having broken their seals, those waters become suddenly dull and opaque with gray or sallow silt, and rise up to destroy and kill without will or thought or purpose or mercy. And at such times, to see goodness in dwelling all creation requires a labor of vision that only a faith in Easter can sustain. But it's there, effulgent, unfading, innocent, but languishing in bondage to corruption, groaning in anticipation of a glory yet to be revealed, both a promise of the kingdom yet to come and a portent of its beauty. Until that final glory, however, the world remains divided between two kingdoms where light and darkness, life and death, grow up together and await the harvest. In such a world, our portion is charity, it's love. 
And our sustenance is faith. And so it will be until the end of days. As for comfort when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. Such faith might never seem credible to someone like Ivan Karamazov, or still the disquiet of his conscience, or give him peace in place of rebellion. But neither is it a faith that his arguments can defeat, for it is a faith that set us free from optimism long ago and taught us hope instead. Now we are able to rejoice that we are saved not through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace. That God will not unite all of history's many strands in one great synthesis, but will judge much of history false and damnable. That he will not simply reveal the sublime logic of fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation languishes. And that, rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away all tears from her eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. For the former things will have passed away. And he that sits upon the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. And I I know that's a really long quote, and there's a lot there. And so let me just summarize it, because I, I believe what Hart is getting at is really important. When we see tragedy like Uvalde, there is a temptation to explain well-meaning but ignorant individuals want to say things like God had a purpose or God has a plan. No, absolutely not. It was nothing but evil. Hart says, as for comfort when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. God had no part in this. There are other powers in this world beside God, and they are to blame. Now, does this mean that that God was absent? No, not at all. God sees everything. God hears everything. God mourns and laments with all those mothers who cannot be consoled. Just like in Jeremiah 31 and in Matthew chapter 2. God is with them. God is on their side. God is seen in the brave, brave teachers. Who did everything they could to shelter those children from evil. God is present. And those who are sincerely seeking to bring comfort to a hurting community. God is there. And his heart is broken. Just like ours.
So as we contemplate this horrific tragedy, what can we take comfort in? We take comfort in what God is doing and will do. Hart offers this interesting line. He says, For it is a faith that sets us free from optimism long ago and taught us hope instead. What does this mean? It means that we do live in a fallen world. Our our faith that we have is not shallow. It it does not pretend like something like this will never happen again. It's an acknowledgement that we live in a world full of evil. And instead of optimism, we are a people of hope. We acknowledge evil, but we look ahead to what is to come. The early church regularly saw people put to death. They saw their friends, their neighbors, their family members put to death. How could they endure? How could they keep going? It was because they were a people of hope. And they never let go of what God is doing and is going to do. And they clung to hope. And they understood that that God was coming again one day to judge all of this evil. God is not coming again to explain this evil. He's coming again to judge it. And in so doing, he will make all things right. He will raise up every lost child in Uvalde this last week. Every child that has been a victim to gun violence. Every child that has died at the hands of abusive parents. Every child that has starved to death because of lack of nourishment. And on and on and on. And he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. And no sorrow. No crying. Nor any more pain for the former things will have passed away. And he that sits upon the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. Let's pray. O Lord, you who abhor those who murder the innocent, Be not deaf to our bitter cries, we pray. And do not abandon us to our pain this day. Hear our raging words of protest, O God of Jacob. Heed our groans for justice and meet us in this lowly and desperate place. Awake, Lord. Rouse yourself. Deliver us from evil. For your name's sake, so that we might witness your might to save and your power to heal. We pray this in the name of our fortress and refuge. Amen. If you're here this morning and there's anything that we can help you with, if there's anything that you need at all, won't you come as we stand and as we sing?